Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we, we thank you for this book of Habakkuk and the way it's already spoken to us over the past few weeks. Lord, I just pray you would speak again. You would move in this place. You would bring conviction of sin, um, repentance, and bring fresh faith and belief in the power of the Holy Spirit to change us and help us walk according to your commandments, Lord God. And I pray that the name of Jesus Christ is lifted high and glorified as we read the Bible and as I preach. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're halfway through this sermon series in the short little Old Testament book called Habakkuk. Uh, In the first week, we saw how Habakkuk complained to God and we talked about honest prayer and the fact that God is big enough to handle our complaints and we are able to come to him and say, this is how I'm feeling, this is what I'm going through, this is what I want you to do. And, And prayer should be that place of honesty in the presence of God. And then last week, we thought about Habakkuk 2 verse 4, this glorious verse where God starts to answer Habakkuk's complaint and God says to Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. And we were reminded that we receive righteousness, we receive the gift of everlasting life, not by our own works, but through faith in Jesus who died for us on the cross, who rose again in power and who won for us salvation for all who believe in Jesus. Today, we're almost on the down of a roller coaster because today we're going to talk about woe. We're going to talk about sin and judgment. And we're going to read the rest of Habakkuk chapter 2 and the way that God responds to Habakkuk talking about the Babylonians who are going to invade the nation of Judah. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Habakkuk chapter 2. And if not, don't worry because the words will appear on the screen behind me. But we're going to read together Habakkuk 2 verses 2 to 20. This is God speaking to the prophet Habakkuk about the nation of Babylon. So Habakkuk 2, reading from verse 2 to 20. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For the vision, uh, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe, to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth to cities and all who dwell in them Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a house with bl- uh, who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labour merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the, Lord, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbours drink. 
You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol? When its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So in chapter 1, God has said to Habakkuk, I'm raising up the Babylonians and they're going to come and invade Judah because of the sin of the Israelites. So God has said in chapter 1, there will be justice on the sin of the Israelites. In chapter 2, and what we've just read, God says there will be justice also upon the Babylonians for their aggression, for their violence upon men, for their destruction of cities. Five woes. Five curses are pronounced upon this Babylonian people who so viciously invade, attack and destroy. And we're going to go through those five woes and examine them in detail and also examine ourselves and ask ourselves, we might not be vicious warmongers like the Babylonians, but are we guilty of some of the same sins as these Babylonian people? This morning is is a sorrowful, sombre invitation to examine yourself. But the main point from Habakkuk chapter 2, the main point from what I've just read this morning is this. God does not leave sin unpunished. God does not leave sin unpunished. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. He is a merciful God. He sent his son Jesus into the world to bring mercy into the world so that people would turn and receive that forgiveness. So he is a merciful God. And so he waits to bring justice. You know, he's not bringing justice upon the town of Pharaoh right now because he's waiting for some to repent and turn and believe in Christ and receive the mercy that is offered by Christ upon the cross. But though he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, God is also just. He is totally good. And that means that there will be no sin that goes unpunished because it would not be just of God to just ignore evil, to ignore something that someone had done wrong. God does not leave sin unpunished. And Christianity teaches that either a person believes in Christ and therefore the punishment for sin is taken by Christ upon the cross. That's why Christ dies. He dies on the cross, taking the punishment for your wrongdoing so that every Christian who believes in him, the punishment's been dealt out. God has been shown to be just. God has been shown to be good. And so we receive mercy and forgiveness. It's not that our sins go unpunished. It's that the punishment falls upon Christ rather than us. So either you're a believer in Christ and you're forgiven by God or you will bear the punishment yourself for your own sin in hell. 
And so as we go through this passage, there should be two reactions to Habakkuk chapter 2. The reaction of Christians should be, praise Jesus for what he has done for me. Thank you that I am forgiven. And Lord God, help me change, transform my life, send the Holy Spirit to transform me and and make me more Christ-like today. That's the reaction of Christians. Praise Jesus for mercy. If you're not a Christian, your reaction to Habakkuk chapter 2 should be, I'm in big trouble. I need a saviour. And if that is you this morning, I would invite you to place your faith in Jesus Christ because he is the only one who can save you from the judgment that will come upon you for the sins that you have committed. This is the good news of Christianity, that Christ died in order that you might be forgiven. Now, I appreciate that that is a sombre and serious introduction to a sermon, but I make no apologies for that, because there are times in the Bible when the Bible is blunt and stern and strong. And Habakkuk chapter 2 is one of those chapters that speaks very openly and honestly about sin and judgment and opens the door for us to think about mercy and the mercy that we have in Jesus. So, five woes to go through from Habakkuk chapter 2. And the first woe is in verse 6. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own and loads himself up with pledges. The sin of the Babylonians, according to verse 6, is clear. They steal from others. They amass wealth and possessions in ways that destroys the livelihood of others. They take exorbitant pledges and loans and plunder many, many nations. They are heaping up wealth for themselves, exploiting the nations that they invade and conquer and destroy. I wonder whether we need to ask ourselves some questions in light of that sin of the Babylonians. Are we, in our lives, heaping up wealth in ways that hurt others? Are we heaping up wealth in ways that hurt others? Are we doing an honest job, making an honest living, work, doing a job that pays, but doing it for the common good, a good job that blesses others? Or are we earning money in a way that exploits others? I tell you the truth, when I used to work in marketing, there were jobs I had to turn down because they were jobs that would be marketing products that would do people harm rather than do people good. If you want to make a lot of money, go and work in the gambling industry and marketing. There's great salaries in that industry. But as a Christian, I could not apply for those jobs because those companies, those bookmakers, exploit the poorest people in society who can't afford to lose money as they gamble away their possessions and wealth. I wonder, what about your shopping habits? Do you buy, always buy the cheapest that helps you heap up possessions for yourself? Or do you buy fairly to reduce exploitation in order to bless the world rather than exploit it? And it's even worth asking this question. Are we people who steal Music, do we steal music? Do we steal things that are available online? Maybe watching sports events or subscription services without paying for them. Maybe even stealing from our employer and office supplies. The final question to ask ourselves in light of this verse is, are we generous with our wealth? Are we giving to others who are more needy than us? Or are we heaping up possessions as if it's a tribute to our richness and our success in life? 
I suggest that probably most people in the West need to examine the way they earn money and use their money because we're very, very fortunate in this country. And we need to think about whether we are earning money and using our money in a way that blesses others or exploits others. Do you know this? God cares about how you earn and how you spend your money. If God cares about it, do you care about it? Do you need to repent this morning and ask for mercy and ask for wisdom from God on how you use your money? If you do need to ask God for mercy, then remember this. Christ died that you might be forgiven. This is not about sitting in our seats and feeling guilty with what we've done in the past. This is about remembering that we can be forgiven and we can be transformed by the Holy Spirit. But of course, there's a somber warning here for the Babylonians and for all those who don't repent and ask for forgiveness. The punishment for the Babylonians fits the crime. In verses 7 and 8, God says, The ones who have plundered and exploited will be plundered themselves. The debtors will rise up and plunder them. The Babylonians themselves, once rich conquerors, become the spoil as they are judged for their sin. And so I urge you to call on God for mercy and transformation in your life. The second woe. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. To set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. The second woe builds on the previous theme, the previous woe. Once again, focusing on achieving wealth and security through evil means. But this time, the wealth is poured specifically into building houses which are cut off from others and designed to be safe. Do you see what the Babylonians are doing? They're coming in, they're plundering nations, they're stealing their wealth, and then they're pouring that wealth into building castles for themselves, separated from the rest of the world, so that they are safe and secure. The Babylonians place their safety and security in houses that they've built for themselves, while others struggle and perish. I wonder how you've reacted to the growing cost of living that's happening and coming in this country. Maybe you've said this, well, we're okay in our nice, safe houses. I'll just look after myself and cut myself off. I hope you've responded in a different way to that and said something like this. We need to share with and help others with openness and love. Our home is not a place where we cut ourselves off from the world. Our home has open doors where we welcome people in in order to bless them as much as we possibly can. Let me ask you another question this morning. Where is your trust and where is your dependence? Is it in your wealth? Is it in your nice house? Is it in the savings that you have amassed for yourself? Or is your trust in God? You trust in in him. Maybe there are some who need to confess this morning that they are safe and comfortable, but their safety and comfort has come from cutting themselves off from other people around them, not caring for others, not loving others. It's confess that they find their confidence in their nice, big, safe house rather than Jesus Christ. 
it's interesting that in verse 11, the, the, the wood, the stone that their houses are built from, cries out against the sin of the Babylonians. Isn't that an interesting idea? That it's the wood of the house that testifies against the Babylonians and against their sin. Well, I think that's quite a scary thing to ponder. I wonder, how would your house testify about you? Would your house testify and say, yeah, this is, this is their castle, this is their safe place, this is their nest, they look after themselves? Or would your house say, this is a place of love, this is not a cut-off place, this is a place of blessing and care and, and joy and generosity to other people? And this, this verse doesn't mean it's wrong to own your own property or have your own house, but there is a sin in cutting yourself off and neglecting others while you protect yourselves, precisely as the Babylonians are doing. Again, this isn't to bring guilt and condemnation. This is to bring conviction and trust in the mercy of Jesus Christ. So believe in him for forgiveness and cry out for change and ask the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom in in how to move on and change. Third woe, in verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labour merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? Now, in order to explain that woe, I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 to 15. You can turn there if you want to. I'm sorry that it's not on the screen. But 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 to 15. This is Paul writing about work. And this is what he says. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, that's the day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. And you see what Paul's writing about in 1 Corinthians? He's saying that people do work. And you either do work which builds on the foundation of Christ. You are relying on the strength of Christ to help you work. And you're doing things that honour and glorify Christ. And actually every deed that you do in life can be to the glory of Jesus Christ because you're thankful to him. You're, You're showing love and showing fruits of the spirit in the way that you act and live. And everything that you do that is in obedience to Christ and glorifies Christ will remain into eternity, won't, won't be burned up in the fire, will be a tribute to the glory of Jesus Christ. Of course, the work of the Babylonians is the exact opposite of that. They have built towns on iniquities, on murder and on bloodshed. Clearly not. When, G- when the time of judgment comes, this work, the towns that the Babylonians have built themselves, will be burned to the ground because they are not in any way good or holy or glorifying to Christ. They are simply in their own strength and for their own glory. Do you know, 1 Corinthians 3 says, even Christians can waste their time. They will still be saved, but they may suffer loss, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Shall I stop or shall I keep going, Johnny? It's the batteries. Yeah. (laughs) I'll go this. I'll go this. Don't worry, Johnny. It's fine. (coughs) 
1 Corinthians 3, I'll say it again, says that even Christians can work in a way that gets burned up at the end of time. Do you see that? There are some people who seem to suffer loss when the fires of judgment come, yet they're still saved, but they've devoted themselves to building their own little empire. And therefore, they're still saved, so they still enter heaven, but what they've built will be burned up and, and destroyed, essentially. That's a warning to all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Are you working for Christ's glory? Are you working in obedience to Christ's commands? Or are you building things that have no eternal significance at all? Examine the way you spend your life this morning. What are you doing in Christ's strength and for Christ's glory? Why is that a good question to ask yourself? Well, the answer is in verse 14. One day, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Now, I don't know any part of the sea that is not covered by water. If you know a part of the sea that's covered by anything other than water, then tell me about it. Because what Habakkuk is saying, or what God is saying through Habakkuk, is that the whole earth will be about the glory of the Lord. The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And either the things you've worked at here on earth will be part of that knowledge, will be part of that glory. People will say, oh, did you see what person Mr. X did? He glorified Christ in working really well and, and for Christ's glory. And he loved people and he cared for people and he was generous with his wealth and possessions. He, his, his life is to the glory of the Lord. So either your life and your works will be part of Christ's glory on that day or it will be burned up it will not be on the surface of the earth at all because it doesn't bring glory to Christ that's one of my favorite verses of the Bible Habakkuk 2:14. the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea Do you know I long for people in our town to know the glory of the Lord today so that they repent and believe in Christ before this day comes, so that they too can rejoice in the salvation they have received in Christ. I don't want them to wait until that day when they will be judged for their sins, but I want them to repent now so that they might believe in Christ and receive mercy. Will your work be part of that glorious um, world in which we live, lasting beyond into eternity? We're talking about friends saved because we shared the gospel with them we're talking about people who we loved and cared for and showed the love of Christ in our deeds and words we're talking about joyful moments celebratory moments because joy is a fruit of the spirit so when you celebrate when you party hard if you're doing it to the glory of Christ that's the thing that will be remembered in heaven God God will remember the party that you held that was glorifying to him so I'm not just talking about serious salvation things I'm talking about living all of life loving Christ and glorifying him, showing the fruits of the Spirit in your life. That's not what the Babylonians did. They built for their own glory. They built something that was just going to be burned up for the day of judgment. And so maybe we need to repent of work that isn't glorifying to Christ, isn't all about the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The fourth woe. Woe to him who makes his neighbours drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Do you know the nation of Babylon, according to Daniel 5, was a nation known for drinking parties. I've just said you can have a, glory, a party that's holy and glorious and praiseworthy to Christ. But the Babylonians were famous for 
holding drinking parties, which often turned into wild orgies. That was what happened in the nation of Babylon. It's, it's referenced in Daniel chapter 5. The Bible condemns getting drunk as sinful. It says in Ephesians, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So don't get drunk. Get, get, getting drunk is not of God. But this verse condemns something slightly different. This verse condemns lust, wanting to gaze on someone else's nakedness and therefore using drink as a way of doing this to exploit them. Pornography is an industry and activity which is so obviously condemned by these, this verse. It's an industry that exploits people's poverty and desperation to serve the sinful lusts of the people who use pornography. And so this verse says, woe to you if you watch porn. You need the mercy and forgiveness of God. Woe to you if you use drink to sleep around. You need to call out to Jesus for mercy and forgiveness. And I think all of us sitting here know that the society in which we live are guilty of those things to a large degree. And there'll be many people, possibly even in this room, who need to ask for mercy because of those things. If you don't, this verse says, if you don't call for, to Jesus for mercy, just as you have shamed others, so you will be shamed as well. Verse 16, the cup of wine you drink will be turned into a cup of God's wrath upon you. That's the message of judgment that comes through in this verse. Instead of drinking wine yourself and getting others drunk, you will drink God's wrath of judgment. And so I urge you, repent of sin. Turn to Jesus Christ and believe in him. He, is, he has arms open wide to forgive you for the sins in your life. Fifth woe, in verse 19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. The final woe is all about idolatry, which means wor worshipping anything other than God. In, his, in history, in generations gone by, this would mean literally building a statue and bowing down to the statue or the totem pole and giving glory to this created thing, this thing made of stone, this thing made of wood and saying to the stone, awake, do something. They would pray to this dead thing that they themselves had created. But we ourselves need to be honest and admit that our hearts are guilty of idolatry as well. Probably not in that same way where we create something and bow down to a statue. But let me ask you this question. What is the number one thing in your heart? Do, do an exercise with me. Hold, imagine you're holding out your hands. And this is the first time this has happened and I'm unable to hold out my other hand, but never mind. Imagine you're holding out your hands and in your hands you have everything in your life. You're holding all the things in your life. Now, hold them out with open palms and imagine I came and took something away from you that was in your hand. Imagine your, your life is in your hand, your family, your job, your career, your sports teams, your hobbies. What is the one thing, if I were to take it, you would shut your hand immediately? Cannot take that, cannot have that. What's the thing that would be top of your list that you would cling to? What's the thing that you can't live without? And if it was anything other than God, 
that's an idol in your life. If you're placing something higher than God in that example, then that's an idol. An idol is the thing you worship and praise more than anything else. An idol is the foundation of your life, the thing you put your hope in, the thing where you find your deepest joys. And idols can be good things that we turn into God things. So let me, let me give you an example. Family is a wonderful, wonderful gift from God. But what happens when you elevate family and make it an idol above God? You find your identity, you find your joy, you find your security in life in family. Who are you? I'm a father or a mother or a brother and sister. That's my primary identity because family is the most important thing to me. So that's who I am. Where do I find my joy? It's in my family. Things going well. Family parties, family celebrations. Where do you find security? Your family surrounding you. Family becomes the foundation on which you build your life. Now, a crisis emerges in your family life. An argument, a disagreement, an illness, maybe even death. The foundation on which you are building your life begins to crumble. It's inevitable that every family will come to an end at some point. This is what happens. So imagine you're building your life upon your family. It's your foundation. It's where you find your identity. It's where you find your joy. It's where you find your security in your family. And suddenly it starts to crumble. The foundation on which you stand is crumbling. And so you too, too fall. You start to doubt your identity. Oh, I'm an awful dad. I'm an awful mum. I've done horrible things. I'm, who am I? I'm nothing. I'm a complete mess. I'm just, I'm, I've got no value in myself anymore because what I put my value in is crumbling around me. I have no joy anymore. Everything's gone. My family life is no longer fun anymore. It's horrible. And you find no security. What am I going to do? These people who've been around me for years and years, protecting me and guarding me, it's all falling apart. In other words, when your family needs you the most to love the people around you, you crumble as well if you make family your number one thing above God. But suppose instead you love God and he is the number one in your life. He is the one you build your life on. You will love your family better if you put God first. Here's why. Because God pours love into your heart and you can pour that love out upon the people around you in your family. And even when the worst things happen and the family life starts to crumble, you're still stood upon the rock that is Christ. Your life is not crumbling. Your identity is in Christ. I'm still loved by God the Father. I'm not falling apart. I'm still a son of the Father in heaven. And I'm still receiving this love. So in this crisis, in this awful moment, I can pour love into the family. Do you see? If you make family number one, you fall apart with your family. If you make your family under God, you love your family through thick and thin. You find joy even in the deepest and darkest moments of your life because God is with you and God loves you and God is holding you up. So family is a wonderful gift from God, but don't make it more important than God in your life because you will be doing your family a disservice by doing that. You will love them worse. Make God number one. He is the one you worship. He gets your praise and adoration. He is the foundation of your life. He is, the, he is, he is where you find your security. He is where you find your deepest joys. 
Now look at verse 16. What does idolatry look like for these Babylonians? They're shouting, awake to a wooden thing. Arise to a stone that obviously cannot arise. It's just a piece of rock. They're trying to call life into a dead thing. This is why God is the one we must worship. He is self-existent. He is the giver of life. He's the source of all life. He doesn't need anybody else to give him life. He doesn't need anyone else to create him, for he is the creator, the eternal one who has existed forever. He is the source of life. He is self-existent. We don't need to call to God, awake God, wake up, come on, have life. No, he is the one who gives us life. Do you see? That's why he is the one worthy of our worship. And this is what idolatry really is, is it's trying to give things that aren't God, powers and life and things that they don't really have in them. A family will never be the firmest foundation in life. A family will never be as firm a foundation as Christ. And so when you make a family your idol, you're trying to give it something that it it never was intended to have. God was meant to be the one who is your foundation. He is the one who is your joy and your security through all things. And from that security, from that identity, from that place in Christ, you can love your family really, really well. I'm not being anti-family in any way at all. I'm saying I want us to be, have brilliant families in this church because we find our security in Christ first. We worship him first. When we idolise, we attribute God-like qualities to created things that aren't God. Is God your number one? Is he your first and deepest love? Is he the one you praise and worship? Is he the foundation of your life? If not, repent. Call on Christ for mercy and he will forgive you. And pour out his Holy Spirit upon you so that you can change and make God number one. Now as I draw to a close, you might be sat there thinking, what a miserable, miserable sermon. I mean, it, I mean, how many times did the passage use woe? So I sort of don't apologise for that. What a miserable, miserable sermon you've just preached there, Duncan. And the answer is that if you're not a Christian, it is a miserable sermon. It is a miserable sermon. It's a sombre, stark, bold warning that you are in trouble, that there is judgment for sin and you need to turn and repent. It is a miserable sermon. Do you think Habakkuk wasn't going to preach a nice, jolly, like happy message to the Babylonians, was he? Hey, Babylonians, you're invading our land. Oh, you're so nice. We think you're fantastic. No, he was going to preach a message of woe. God wanted to speak judgment to the Babylonians. Babylonians, you need to repent. Otherwise, you're going to face this terrible justice, this terrible judgment. But if you are a Christian, this is actually a sweet sermon to your ears and to your heart. Yes, there are things that we need to be convicted about and we need to change in our life. And I'm preaching to myself too here as well. There are things that I need to give to God here, repent and confess. But the glory and the joy of being a believer in Jesus Christ, when we read these passages in the Old Testament about judgment, is to know that God receives sinners. Christ came to rescue sinners. Doctors, do, uh, doctors are for people who are sick, aren't they? And Christ is the great physician. He is for people who need forgiveness and need transformation in their life. And so when I, I read this chapter, yes, it is miserable in one sense, but in another sense, it directs my gaze upon my saviour, Jesus Christ. He died for me. He bore the punishment my sins deserve so that I will face no judgment from God. The the punishment has already been paid 
for my sins. Christ died in my place. There's no judgment. There's no condemnation for Christians. In fact, we are righteous by faith. And so in one sense, this passage is sweet to the Christian's ear because we're drawn to Christ and we're grateful for what he's done and we're praising him and glorifying him, thanking him for the forgiveness from all these things. And then we're praying, Lord, help me grow in holiness. Help me grow in these areas of life. Lord, we want to earn in godly ways and we want to spend our money in godly ways and be generous with our wealth. We don't want to invest everything in our own homes and our own safety. We want to have open doors and open lives to bless the people around us. We want to do work for Christ. We want to build upon the foundation that is Christ. And so we pray that every act that we do, every work that we do, would bring glory to our Saviour Jesus. We don't want to get drunk and we don't want to exploit others out of lust. But rather we want to love people and care for people and honour people as much as we possibly can. And we don't want to worship idols. We don't want to build our lives on things that will ultimately crumble. We want to worship God alone and make him the foundation of our lives and our hearts. And we can because Jesus died that we might be forgiven and he gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit that he is in us and with us and working through us. So I'm going to pray for us. Then I'm going to leave a time of silence where you might want to confess to God sin and just admit that there are areas of your life that need to change. That's certainly what I will be doing. And then I'm going to invite us to take communion together. Communion is a moment where we come and remember what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And confession is part of that process. We confess that we have sinned, but we eat of the bread and remember that Jesus gave his body that we might be forgiven. We drink the wine. We confess our sins. We remember his blood was shed to wash us completely clean. And so let me pray and then we'll leave silence. And then we'll come and take communion together. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you with a seriousness and a somberness at the words from Habakkuk chapter 2. Lord, we know that in many ways we are guilty of of sinful things. Lord, we pray and ask for your mercy upon our lives. We pray into the way we've earned money and the way we've spent money, Lord God. Forgive us when we've spent money selfishly and heaped up possessions for ourselves rather than showing the generosity of spirit that you have shown to us. Lord, forgive us where we have invested solely in our own home and own security at the expense of others, cutting off other people, shutting them out. Help us to live open lives, inviting many people in and being generous to all around. Lord, forgive us when we have worked for our own glory and built not on the foundation that is Christ, but but gone in other directions. Lord, I pray you'd help us by the Holy Spirit to do all things in the power of Jesus and for the glory of Jesus. Lord, forgive us for moments when we've used alcohol in a way that does not honour you and where we've sought to exploit others and serve our own lusts rather than honouring the people around us. We pray for forgiveness, we pray for healing and we ask that we would live to honour people and bless those around us. And finally, Lord, forgive us for moments of idolatry. Forgive us for moments when we've put something above you that shouldn't be above you. Lord, we want you to be our number one because you are the greatest in all the world. You are the creator God, the uncreated one. And so there's nothing that you have created that is better than you. Any good gift is a good gift from you, Lord God. So I pray that you would be number one in our hearts. You would be number one in our minds. You would be number one in our lives, Lord God. 
And I pray out of that we would enjoy all the wonderful gifts that you give to us. Lord, I focused on family as an example, Lord, so I pray bless our families. May we love our families so deeply and so wonderfully because we worship you as our number one and because our lives are built upon you as number one. So Lord, we thank you for Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. We thank you that when we pray for forgiveness, you are eager to forgive. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And we are your children who you will love forever and ever. I pray there is no condemnation or guilt in our hearts this morning, Lord God, but only thanksgiving and praise for the forgiveness you have won for us. Stir us, I pray, to live in these areas where we've been convicted and grow in holiness throughout this week and the days ahead, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.